You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless, and I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Improper Channels, released April 17, 1981. It was written by Maury Ravinsky, Ian Sutherland, and Adam Arkin, based on a story by Ravinsky, directed by Eric Till, and released by Crown International Pictures. I'm guessing Adam Arkin is related to Alan. He is a son. He is one of the one of many sons of Alan Arkin, who actually host a podcast together reviewing movies. Yeah. <laughs> I just listened to their Howling review. <laughs> do they review their own movies? Um, I don't great. know if I they do, <laughs> but uh, Adam is actually in another werewolf movie for 1981. Oh, the, uh, the how, what is he, it? He's the main character of- High of School Howl, what is it called? High School Howl, that's it. <laughs> no, I like that better. Howl's Howl, Moving Castle? Howl School. <laughs> high, high School, High Moon, Moon High. Full Moon High? <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> I was just going to sit and watch for a while. It garnered four Genie nominations at the third annual ceremony in 1982, including Best Foreign Actor for Arkin and Hartley, Best Screenplay, and Best Art Direction. Foreign? What the hell is a Genie? I don't know genies. We've been through this, guys. <laughs> we uh, Do I have to explain what they, a Genie is oh, every wait, time? They're, it's the Canadian thing, right? It's it's a creature. It's it's also known as a gin. A it gin. comes out All of right. a, a yeah, bottle yeah. or a lamp. No, uh, Genie is a, is a Canadian Oscar. Right, so they're foreign to Canada. Yes. Okay, got it. But this film was shot in Canada, so it's a domestic film for so, Canada starring foreign actors. My American brain cannot not be the center of the universe. Right. Okay. Only Arkin won for of the four nominations. For best, for best foreign actor. <laughs> he must have been the only one or something. <laughs> <laughs> Not many movies came out in Canada that yeah. year. <laughs> I mean, to be to be fair, you say it was such disdain. <laughs> I apologize to our Canadian listeners. There were six. Okay, <laughs> we start in the back seat of a luxury car, moving through the lower income side of town. The passenger, Fraser, asks his driver if he's sure he's in the right place, and he confirms. The car pulls into an open field beside a freeway overpass, where they find Jeffrey Martley, played by Alan Arkin, cooking eggs on a camper stove. He offers Frazier and Frazier's second-in-command a taste of his breakfast, but Frazier wants to talk business. They have a problem. They roll out some blueprints to review because they're having wind problems at another job site. Jeff assures Frazier that he predicted this problem and brought up the necessity for wind baffles during construction, and Frazier laments that it will now cost way more to install them because the job is finished, so it's always more expensive to do things afterward. This is like those buildings that melt cars and fry right. eggs. Yeah. <laughs> Surprisingly, his assistant here confirms Jeff's account that the problem was brought up and dismissed. I was not expecting that from who you expect to be this, like, suck-up character. Yeah. Well, also, he, he seemed kind of keen on getting down on that breakfast, too. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he, he, like, it seems like they were old friends, but but nothing about this relationship seems like it's very long-lasting. No. Like, it, it seems like he was hired to do a job, and then they dumped him when it was done. Right. Jeff offers to look over the plans and find a cheaper solution. 
Before they leave, Fraser asks how long Jeff expects to be living out in this field without a phone, and he seems to think he'll be back home soon in a couple of days. So, I mean, I, I know we're going to get into it here in just a second. Right. But it seems like he could find somewhere else. Yeah, he's an architect. He could afford to, to live somewhere. I think he doesn't care. Yeah, but... I think he took it as an excuse to go camping. Yeah, I, I guess. Um, it, it seems like we're we're supposed to feel like he's like in a really bad way, and I don't right. believe that he is. Yeah, if you could park in literally any neighborhood, why did you pick under this freeway overpass? Yeah. I guess it's just the place where the cops aren't going to shoo you away because yeah. it's low income. But he has an office. He'd probably be living out of his office. Does he have an office? I think so. He's an architect. But he seems like he's a independent contractor who just gets brought in for jobs no they fire him later from a specific job okay well i think the point is that it's very unclear yeah but the reason he's staying here is because he's been evicted from his home for marital marital problems by his wife right right we cut to his home where his wife diana martley is working under a car nearby their daughter nancy hands mommy tools from the toolbox daddy shows up and nancy jumps into his arms he asks about a band-aid on her arm, and she blames a hot chocolate spill. Jeff finds Diana under the car and asks what she's doing, and Nancy blurts out that she's writing an article about all the things women need men for and decided to try her hand at stuff. Apparently, there's nothing wrong with the car. I'm not sure how all the wrenches were being put to use. It's clear from the exercise that she plans on being alone long term. Nancy tells Diana about Daddy's secret plan to go camping this weekend, and she reminds him that it will likely rain but he insists that it's just the backyard and they can come inside if it gets bad. Eventually, she agrees, but when Nancy heads back to her room, Diana freaks out over him making her look like the bad guy again. Did he, though? He just wanted to go camping. She expressed a concern, and he responded, and she approved. Uh, I mean, I think to the kid, probably won't think anything of it, but the mom's right, and, the, you know... That it's gonna rain? Well, that it's going to rain and it's going to rain really bad and that it's not a good idea to go camping. And he put her in that position. Right. But it's camping in the backyard of this house. And like he said, we could just come inside if it rained. Like, I don't think this is the kind of marital disagreement that warrants like, oh, you made me the bad guy. And it's like, it's literally a nothing request that there's there's no reason there's no way either of these people would be upset in this real I, situation. I, I know. I don't blame her at all for being upset because... It should have been a discussion. It should he should have asked before he told the kid, and she could have put her foot down without the kid knowing. I guess that's that's what she wants. She wants this to have been a conversation that yeah. they had without the kid around. But I stand by my claim that I don't I don't think either one of them would need to ask permission to set up a tent in the backyard and do a fun thing with their kid. It just seems like yeah, we'll try it. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. That's fine. It's not like it's a huge commitment for anything. Yeah, I guess. I just think that it's a discussion and maybe the discussion could be, how about next weekend when it's not going to rain like a monsoon? Sure. And, uh, you know, and then you've had a discussion and you don't have to be against each other. Thank you for joining Dr. Richard Wells, who's marriage <laughs> counselor to Patrick and Jesse. I also felt like it's indicative of problems already that maybe he's constantly doing stuff without her supervision and and but but at the same time 
I get the impression too that he kept this a secret from her because he knew she would say, no, you can't camp in the backyard. And he just wanted to do it and it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Well, also, I think that she's probably upset that he's showing up constantly to the house when they're supposed to be separated. Right. And while she wants to kind of get a feel for what it's like to be without him for a little while, you know, maybe maybe she'll change her mind, maybe she won't, but she needs that time alone and he is just there constantly finding any excuse to be around her including i'm gonna have a camp out and if it gets bad like maybe he already knows it will i'll come inside and i can sleep inside the house but he does admit fault here and he apologizes to her for planning this thing without talking to her she reminds him that if they do get rained into the house that under no circumstances will they be sleeping together and he agrees she asks if he's just telling her what she wants to hear and he admits that that's exactly what he's doing Jeff and Nancy assemble a tent in the backyard while Diana works on her article in the house. Impossibly, she can hear them as though they're setting up the tent in her office and keeps getting distracted, refusing to close the window. They, quote-unquote, finish the tent, and it looks like Leonardo Leonardo's desk. (laughs) What do you think of my desk? I made it myself. And I have all these pieces left. Uh, it's great. If the point... I, I was thinking about this afterwards... She she's working on the car, in, in in an attempt to understand the 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 male job of like things like fixing the car, but clearly since he doesn't know how to set up a tent, he probably doesn't know how to fix the car. He doesn't know how to fix. He's definitely not the kind of guy to fix the car. Diana steps outside to offer her thoughts on the tent that her architect husband has constructed. <laughs> <laughs> not bad, huh? Hunchback of Notre Dame was a tent. That's what he'd look like. Nancy and Jeff hop in the tent, and we flash forward a couple hours to a terrible storm ravaging the tent. So, uh, this happened to me. <laughs> okay. This this whole event happened to me. Uh, my extended family had property on Lake Erie, and me and one of my like extended family members like say hey you know we're the same age and i was like hey let's like camp out in a tent we'll do it right outside the little cottage area so we'll be mm-hmm. right outside right seemed like a perfectly good idea got our sleeping bags you know it's gonna be great middle of the night booming thunder and then all of a sudden the tent just started whipping because the wind just kicked up so immediate yeah and we were just trying to gather all our stuff because i had my game boy and all my games <laughs> oh my god in i'm the like tent? in the tent because i was playing games uh you know we had a lantern so i could play games uh i'm like trying to shove everything into my sleeping bag so i could haul it out there and we, we as soon as we got out of the tent it was just pouring rain just yeah. like horizontal rain <sighs> and we had to abandon the tent because like we're not gonna try to unstake it yeah. in this weather yeah uh and and everyone from inside the house came out to us because they knew we were outside once they heard <laughs> the storms like oh we gotta get them it, it was so surreal that it just kicked up out of nowhere yeah and uh and this because that's not how it happened in california yeah in california a storm takes two days to start <laughs> inside the tent here jeff is face down in a puddle as water gushes in and he looks fully dead like he his does. his nose and mouth are underwater <laughs> and there's like two or three inches of standing water in this tent already (laughs) yeah diana hears the storm and moves to check on her drowning family jeff tries and fails to calm nancy daddy i'm scared don't worry about the thunder honey it's just everybody in heaven clapping (laughs) at our impending deaths (laughs) 
Diana rescues her daughter from the tent, even while Jeff argues that they're barely wet at all. <laughs> and he's like, he's underwater right now. Jeff follows her to the house and she locks him out, which is exactly what she should have done if he thinks that it's comfortable enough out here to keep a child out here. Right. And then it's like, okay, then you deal with it all night and then so, tell me how great it was in the morning. I think this reinforces the fact that he's not great at making decisions. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think what he would have done in five minutes is moved into the car with her like he does himself here after he gets locked out but i like that she locked the door because yeah. he was saying no we're fine we're gonna be great out here in this tent enjoying he stands in the rain and watches his wife dry off his daughter inside before moving to sleep in the car in the morning diana leaves nancy in jeff's custody for some reason before leaving the house nancy asks if daddy can stay for dinner tonight and diana says daddy's busy which is clear code for no he is not invited <laughs> that Jeff intentionally misinterprets, announcing that, oh, no, I'm totally available, and I'll bring the wine. Like, for sure there was going to be wine, and I will bring that part, because I don't have to do anything for that. You cook a whole meal, and I'll buy a $2 bottle of wine at the store. Yeah, again, kind of a dick move. Yeah. Two-buck Chuck? Yeah, it's the best. Nancy's hard to understand in places, but I think she says, Mommy doesn't sound incompatible anymore. Mommy doesn't sound incompatible anymore. No, she doesn't. So maybe you can stay for breakfast too. But when you force words into a kid's mouth that they don't know to make them sound precocious, it just doesn't really work right. We cut to a business park with a fountain where hurricane force winds are whipping things out of people's hands and yanking away people's hats. Jeff stands with Fraser and has a quick fix right away. What's the solution? The solution is trees, sir. I think we're going to need a lawyer. No, we don't need a lawyer. We need trees. That's the solution. Trees? Yeah, about 10 of them, 20 feet away from the building and about 18 feet tall. You're sure? I'm positive, sir. It's going to take a couple of days to get the exact calculations, but it's trees. Good man, Martley. It sounds like despite his tent construction failings, he's kind of a savant when it comes to these architecture problems. I like that there's a bunch of nuns walking through this yeah. area and it's just ripping their clothes off. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get excited, though. It's just like their hoods, basically. Habit. Habit your way. Later, in line at the Burger King, Jeff is explaining to Nancy what caused the whirlwind when they're interrupted by an older woman customer who tells Jeff that she looks exactly like her son, who she never gets to see anymore. She feigns hesitation before asking a favor. She asks if it's not too much trouble if when she leaves the store, she will say goodbye, son, and he could say goodbye, mom, just to remind her of her missing son. Which is weird because she said you look like my son, not you sound like him. Yeah. So if you're not looking at him, then you're not going to have the effect of it being your son. But he agrees. I'm only familiar with this prank because at the student film showcase for my senior project at Cal State Northridge, one of the other films playing in the student showcase was a short called Danny Boy with basically this exact plot, but starring Clint Howard. The guy's shopping at a grocery store late at night and Clint Howard is creepily following him all over until the guy confronts Clint, who admits that he resembles his dead son and asks the same favor. Now, I know this is gonna sound crazy, but I'm gonna pay for my groceries and go. And, and before I do, if you could just say, goodbye, Papa, I, I, won't, I won't look back. I'll just pretend that it's my boy saying it. M maybe that'll give me a little closure. Of course, the same thing happens here, and Jeff improvises a kiss with his goodbye. 
When he turns to the register, the cashier tells him the total, 1455, which is way more than he expected because the older lady was lying and told the cashier that her son would pay for her meal. When they get back in his car, Nancy jumps into the back seat and Jeff tells her to get up front and buckle up, but he doesn't wait for her to do that before yeah. starting to pull out of the parking lot. When a child suddenly runs out in front of the car, Jeff slams on the brakes and the unrestrained Nancy smashes her face on the back of the front seat. He rushes her across the street to the emergency room. And it's clear immediately that this was not necessary because the kids already cheered up two minutes later. Like, she bonked her head. Right. She's not bleeding. There's mm -hmm. no visible I think gash. she might be bleeding a little bit. I didn't see anything. There's yeah. a part where she takes a bandage off of her head and it's red on one side. And, and the nurse says, uh, we need a hit in this part of your head. It bleeds a lot, doesn't it? Oh, okay. Because he insists on keeping secrets with her all the time and she knows seatbelts are required, she offers to lie to everyone that she simply fell down and they make a pinky promise, which is... Mistake number 8,000, probably, in this guy's life. Jeff talks through the injury with a nurse as she types up the details. We cut to the tail end of a couple's therapy session. A man and woman leave the counselor's office, and she advises them to call her if they ever feel an urge to physically assault each other. They're barely in the elevator before the man starts beating his wife again. Ha <laughs> ha! What a funny joke. Hilarious joke. It fits in with all the silly She's fun hitting him having. back. I mean, not, not that either of that is okay. I'm right. just saying. She's hitting back. Back in the hospital, when the nurse learns that the girl was injured in a car, she switches to a different form, which requires a copy be sent to the police. Is that a thing? I bet it is. Yeah. Like, if you get, even if you get, like, minorly injured in a car, you have to inform the police? I think if it's a child that's injured in a car, and mm -hmm. that, because children are supposed to be in car seats, yeah. that... Or wow. at least buckled not, at the time. Not, not 1981. <laughs> yeah. They were, they, were, they were still required to be buckled at the time. Yeah. And I think that it just goes to Child Protective Services, basically, and police to judge the situation. Jeff tries to talk her out of using the car form because obviously he doesn't want the police to get the wrong idea. But it wouldn't really be the wrong idea because he was driving the car with his daughter yeah. not in a seatbelt. The couple's counselor, Gloria Washburn, moves to speak with some co-workers about how well it went with the couple, the necropolises, who were already fighting in the elevator. Gloria begins talking to Nancy about her injury, and Nancy says that she just fell. Then she adds the detail that she fell off of her tricycle, even though these people already know what happened. Well, she's trying to keep up her end of that pinky promise. Right. But he didn't, so now their answers are inconsistent. Gloria starts putting clues together. Conflicting testimony, evasiveness, the bump on the forehead, and the burn on the arm. A woman enters the lobby and starts unloading her personal history on Jeff, including a long string of relatives who died in hospitals, and he stands to go find his daughter. Gloria pleads with the doctor to remove Nancy from her father's custody, and the doctor says the best he can offer is to ask to keep her overnight. Jeff is introduced to Gloria Washburn from Social Services. The doctor tries to sit Jeff back down in the lobby with the sad, hospital-phobic woman, but Jeff just wants to see Nancy. Look, why don't you sit down and we'll have a little bit of talk about it, okay? I don't want to sit down. I just want to see my daughter. Tell me the truth. Tell me what's going on. I'm telling you the truth. He's about. lying. They killed her. Look, we just wanted to keep her in overnight for observation. Wait a minute. You just told me she was fine. She's dead. Face it. Gloria tries to drag Jeff into her office for a conversation, but he resists. So she accuses him of child abuse in front of this whole lobby. Which, spoiler alert, he's technically guilty of. That's what it's called when you drive your car without buckling your kids in and you let them just ragdoll around the back seat. And, yeah. th and then he goes fucking berserk. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. It's like this point on in the movie, he does absolutely the wrong thing every turn. <laughs> Everybody does. 
Mom's a bit guilty too, handing out boiling hot chocolates like a late 90s McDonald's. <laughs> Jeff is furious at the claim and moves to attack her when he is held back by multiple orderlies. He winds up a punch and he misses but knocks out a cop before turning to run out of the building. So in a row, he attacked the social services lady, tried to attack hospital employees, punched a cop, and left the scene. And yeah. his daughter. Yeah. Unless Jeff stays separated from his wife or the kid is rehomed, I'm calling whatever happens a sad ending. Jeff gets home and admits everything that happened to Diana, including that he was required to leave his daughter at the hospital overnight. Now take it easy. She's fine. The doctor says she's fine. What doctor? The, the doctor at the hospital. What hospital? Mercy Memorial Hospital. Well, Jeff, why the hell aren't you there with her? I, I had to run out of there because by accident I punched a cop in the mouth. By accident you it, punched a cop in the mouth? I was trying mouth. to hit an orderly. I hope Diana has learned her lesson about ever leaving a child with this man in the future. Also, it was an accident, I guess, that he hit the cop because he was intending to hit somebody else. And everybody seems to agree that it was an accident. Like, everyone who witnessed the event knows that it Wait, was an accident. Wait, but it was never okay to hit anybody. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. You would, you would go to prison for assault regardless of who it is. No, no, no. It was attempted assault on someone else. Luckily, <laughs> I, I, did, I did get a chuckle at how the cop thing resolved just because yeah. it was like, how are we going to get him out of this cop thing? Yeah, because um, that's like a big deal. <laughs> Diana makes a move for her car to leave. Where are you going? I'm going to the hospital. Where the fuck do you think she's going? You left your six-year-old at a hospital with strangers. Jeff offers to go with her, but Diana convinces him to stay here. He tries calling the hospital many times to check on Nancy, but the lady working the hospital switchboard keeps connecting him to an Indian-American lab technician. I'm not certain, and I couldn't confirm this anywhere, but the doctor has such an exaggerated accent that I almost thought that he might be dubbed over with Alan Arkin doing an impression of an Indian American mm. accent. It did seem like this guy's voice was 80 yard. Yeah. Yes, what is it? I'd like some information about my daughter, please. She's a patient. Am I working on the blood? I don't know what you're doing. Listen, my, my boss is done and my assistant is nowhere to be found. And I am doing the work of three men and I can't answer the phone all day long. Listen, I'm very sorry for the inconvenience. Can you please do me a favor and just put me through to patient information? Please. Obviously, the lab is no help because they don't know where his daughter is and they're not doing work with her blood and repeatedly hangs up on him. When Diana gets there, she sees Nancy in bed and agrees with the doctor to let them keep her overnight and they can pick her up in the morning, which secretly gives them enough time to get things squared away with CPS. Diana comes home and tells Jeff the plan. She tells him not to worry and that it wasn't his fault, but it 1 million percent was. Yeah. Yeah. She has to force him out the door to avoid sleeping with him, but laughs about it like he didn't just hospitalize their child. Back in the hospital, Gloria has somehow acquired a massive computer readout of Jeff's entire life story dating back to the fifth grade. A technician operating the computer lab, Sherman Hu, assures Gloria that everyone's information is quite simple to access in this computer age. It's very simple. Everything everybody ever did is just being out there, taking up space in the computer somewhere. Computers everywhere, filling up and waiting. All you have to do is know the language. They'll tell you everything. She admits to him that she's not legally entitled to this information, and he agrees not to tell anyone he gave it to her. But, so, does he... I'm confused about who this guy is. He works in the computer. Who? <laughs> who is who? Who is who? Uh, he. So he works for Child Protective Services. Right. This is the social services building, not so the hospital anymore. Why does their computer have access to all of this? It stuff? has access to the internet, and yeah, he's using exactly. it to access databases outside of the building. 
Okay, but I feel like a lot of the things that he's accessing, and maybe this was just because people didn't know that you'd have to protect information on the interwebs. Probably. But, like, police reports and stuff like that seem like a lot of that stuff might not be readily available to everyone. Correct. I think he's going above and beyond and trying to access all information he can for her because he likes her so much. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, he's accessing all these databases that should be better guarded but aren't in this early internet time well or and even if they are guarded he is someone who can get past it to get the information that he needs yeah he's he's cameron vale he's you know hacking with his brain sure but alan arkin isn't and we'll get to that later right (laughs) no you just need a book yeah once you got the book then you're how how to hack Uh hack the planet one hack Draw the rest of the owl. <laughs> I don't know if that would play, but I get it. There's a whole subreddit for that. That's called "Draw the Rest of the Owl." <laughs> it's just like people Is this skipping... like a pirate turtle thing. No, it's yeah, totally. <laughs> kind of like that. It, it, the "Draw the Rest of the Owl" thing is a joke about this one pamphlet that <laughs> that didn't give enough instructions on how to draw an owl, <laughs> and so people post t- to the subreddit whenever instructions leave out huge important steps. <laughs> Because it starts off with draw a circle and a square, and you, so you see like I guess an owl-like shape. Okay, and then it's draw the rest. And you, just, the you just see this perfectly drawn owl. <laughs> Wonderful. Gloria asks Sherman to read her a name from a nearby monitor, and he says Harold Clevish. We see Clevish approach the building after hours and clang his cane hard on the glass until a night shift security guard tells him that they're closed. We're closed for the night, sir. Do you realize to whom you are speaking? I am the assistant administrator for the social welfare department, District 4. Gloria meets with Clevish in his office. The man is ready to make a full pressure case against Jeff, especially after learning that he has an indecent exposure arrest in the massive file that Gloria was able to compile. For some reason, even though she's been very gung-ho about removing this girl from her home, she insists to Clevish that she can fix Jeff and solve their family issues. Clevish asks where she got all this info, and she admits it was obtained through a computer system and not through due process. See, I don't know where he gets all that information. I, I just know that it's illegal. Is it? Oh, absolutely. Those are private records that you need a court order to get under normal circumstances. Yes, of course. It's kind of frustrating how... and and. Like from from my knowledge of, of of child protective services now, it's actually incredibly difficult to take somebody's child away. Like sometimes yeah. you think, of course they'd be able to take this child away. Look at all the stuff that's happening, and like none, like all of the stuff in this is really circumstantial, right. and they have no evidence of anything. And 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 much much worse parents have had their children left with them. Right in so, the hospital, she she counts out three out of five warning signs and it's like first of all there's a list of five so clearly there's some warning signs that aren't being displayed well, here and two of them are our stories are inconsistent and she's being evasive and it's like she's six so then, your stories are going to be inconsistent and the kid's going to be evasive well and and then what happens though is that there is a period of time where they observe you and 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 they come right. to your house and they check things out mm-hmm. and they you know figure out more stuff about you they don't just say well, circumstantially, it seems like you might have hurt your child. I'm taking them away forever. Yeah. And and even if 
you were basing this on the father's behavior that he assaulted people in a hospital. It's like, well, we can't release him, the child, to this person. Yeah. We need to find someone else to release this child to. You have the mother. Yeah, and they do address that later and and, and basically say that because they're still married, they wouldn't do that. But that is yeah. also not the way it works, yeah. at least it's not like now. It, they call that a reverse little mismarker. You can only have this child if you divorce. Yeah. <laughs> but Clevish has already decided that the ends justify the means. Gloria even throws her friend Sherman Who under the bus by giving his whole name and for some reason his nationality. What was his name again? Who? Sherman Who. H-U. He's Chinese. Chinese, eh? I think that they were confused about the who part. Yeah, but it's still weird that she would bring it up. Like, if you told me someone's name was Sherman Who, I wouldn't say, "What? why did you say the word who at the end of that person with one name? I would just say, sounds Chinese. Because <laughs> I'm racist. Clevish starts composing grandiose plans to illicitly collect opposition intel on whoever he wants, including his superiors in the department. The next morning, Diana finds Jeff shaving beside his car outside the house and asks where he's living while they're separated. He gives her vague info instead of admitting that he's living out of his car. Jeff and Diana head to the hospital together. Jeff is in disguise because he wants to make things worse. Outside, we see Gloria putting Nancy in the front seat of the car to take her away because apparently in the 1980s, and maybe now still in some places, CPS wasn't a lot better for kids than abusive households were. A nurse tells Diana that Gloria Washburn has presented a court order and taken custody of Nancy. They refuse to give her any information on Gloria's whereabouts, and the nurse advises her to call back tomorrow to get an update on their daughter's status. Gloria tells Nancy that they're headed for a place called Calvin Hall until she can fix her daddy. Diana thinks they need to employ a lawyer. We've got to find her, Jeff. We've just got to find don't her. Don't worry. Don't worry. We'll find her. They have a court order. We'll get a court order. What we need is a lawyer. We'll get a lawyer. Where do you find a lawyer on the weekends? We cut to two men playing golf in the woods. One man is cheating by standing on his opponent's ball while he searches for it. Eventually, the searching man cheats by dropping a ball out of his pant leg and pretending to find it. And obviously, the other guy can't say shit. I'm wondering if this was a scene that was an intentional parody of Goldfinger. Oh, yeah. Because Goldfinger drops a ball when he can't find his ball because Bond has got his foot on it. What would be the point of parodying that scene here? I don't know, but <laughs> it, it just seems like that's exactly what's happening. How can we make this golf scene more interesting? Let's rip off that scene from Goldfinger for no reason. Suddenly, the first cheater notices a golf cart rattling up to the golfers and asks, Fred! Hey, what's that? Oh, dear. That's my next divorce case. Apparently, Jeff and Diana intend to use their divorce attorney, Fred, to regain custody of their daughter. Although I'm assuming it's just Diana's attorney, because in a divorce, you have right. separate attorneys. Yeah. Right. At Calvin Hall, Nancy starts playing with the toys in a room full of kids, and Gloria leaves her there. Fred assures Jeff and Diana that Nancy is safe in the system, and that they will schedule a hearing to begin the process of returning Nancy. Back at Calvin Hall, Nancy is going on a hunger strike until she gets her parents back. A new friend named Jack offers Nancy a bite of a sandwich. Oysters and peanut butter. I made it myself. I assume that she was going to have a shellfish and peanut allergy and just die in the system. Well, also, it, it seems like this school doesn't have a lot of financing. Where are they getting oysters? Yeah, he just found them. I found these oysters in <laughs> those, my nose. Those aren't oysters. <laughs> Rocky Mountain oysters? Oh, God. He might, he might have just left the facility, though, <laughs> and gotten them. Where did find those, Richard? <laughs> the Rocky Mountains, obviously. John Denver's full of shit. <laughs> 
pretty bad. She gives Jack the candy bar that she was just given by the adults trying to convince her to eat. Clevish goes to meet with Sherman Who in his computer lab. Sherman buzzes Clevish into the lab. Harold Clevish? That's right. Chinese? Yeah. Clevish has brought Who flowers and a box of chocolates as a weird bribe to utilize his computer system in the future. At home, we see Diana trying to reach Gloria by phone, pretending to be Gloria's mother. She's told that it's Gloria's day off, and she demands a home phone number, insisting that she already received it from Gloria, but it was stolen in a mugging. To her own mother, you won't divulge this information? What kind of a hospital is this? What do you mean you don't believe me? After she hangs up, their attorney Fred buzzes the front door. He just got back from the hospital where he learned that Jeff assaulted a cop, which is obviously a felony, and they will definitely not see Nancy before a hearing now. Why would they not have told their attorney that he yeah. punched a cop on the way out? But this has nothing to do with the mother getting custody. Right. He advises Jeff to turn himself in so they can bail him out as a show of good faith. At his job, Jeff is invited to his boss Fraser's office. He got a call from someone but refuses to disclose who, and he says that he has to cut ties with Jeff to avoid being caught up in whatever nonsense Jeff has been ensnared in. He offers to call it an extended leave of absence. Uh, now, will you forgive me, please? I gotta run. I have to turn myself into the police. Good lad, good lad. Before he can leave the room, his boss asks where the trees should be located to solve their wind problem. Annoyed at being asked to work without compensation, Jeff yanks all the potted plants out of their pots in his office and stages them around his boss's desk at a small-scale model of the plaza. Fraser is obviously annoyed enough about his dirty desk to fire Jeff officially on his way out. At the police station, Jeff tries to turn himself into the sergeant, played by Harvey Atkin again, who we keep seeing and stuff. Once the sergeant realizes who he is, they all laugh it off. It turns out they all fucking hate the cop that he punched, <laughs> nicknamed Old Ironball. All the cops shake his hand to take pictures with him, and that's the end of that. Like, yeah. they just dropped any any charges yeah. for what he did. I, that's what I, was, I was saying, like, how can we get... Like, the writer's like, how are we going to get him out of this cop thing? It's like, uh, maybe the other cops hate this cop, and yeah. they drop the charges? And that's it. We cut to a Japanese restaurant where Jeff explains to Diana that he won't face any assault charges because they aren't pressing them. Diana thinks that this means he has a clean criminal record, but he admits here that in college, he was arrested for indecent exposure. He got drunk at a party, and his friends urged him up a flagpole naked to recite the Gettysburg Address, and at the same time, a girl's choir came out, and he fell and got caught in the rope and swung by an ankle, naked, upside down. Caught my ankle and I started swinging backwards. And uh, I started screaming, the girls started screaming, there was a lot of screaming going on. Diana thinks this story is laugh out loud hilarious, even when it means the difference between getting their daughter back and not doing that. Her laughter is contagious enough that Jeff even laughs about it. Back at Calvin Hall, Jack has apparently convinced Nancy that her parents are probably dead. <laughs> I don't want them to be dead. Well, maybe they're not. But I guess there's only one sure way to find out. Jack offers to help her break out of Calvin Hall. Jeff convinces Diana that they can sit down with everybody involved and talk out this whole misunderstanding like adults. On their way to the hearing later, Jeff notices that his credit rating is being screwed with by someone and he's getting audited. At the hearing, Gloria introduces Mr. Bucci, who I think is an orderly from the hospital, Yeah. to describe what happened there. He seems completely traumatized by the incident, unless he always talks like this, I don't know. Mr. Bucci, will you tell everyone what happened that day? I was standing there trying to help patients, which is all I want to do in the world, one 
crazy man comes in screaming and yelling and then a policeman comes in screaming and yelling and a crazy man hits a policeman and almost hit me. Is that it? He claims depression and lack of appetite and he says he can't go to work anymore because of the trauma. I'm not sure the point of this scene except to show another life that Jeff has ruined. We see Jack and Nancy leaving Calvin Hall, but they are caught moving down a fire escape by a caretaker in a window. Back at the hearing, Clevish brings up Jeff's criminal record to the surprise of their attorney, Fred. One of the ladies on the commission is super horned up for details about the charges of indecent exposure and asks for Jeff to share all the lurid details. Jeff insists that the charges were pled down to misdemeanor and dismissed. I find myself fascinated by this charge of indecent exposure, and I'd like more details if that's possible. I'd like to point out that the charge was ultimately reduced to a misdemeanor and that the event took place over 20 years ago. I'd still like to hear the details. Well, you're not going to hear any. They're in the file, Miss Klein. You've got them already. No, I don't. So she tries to grab the file from in front of him, and he snags it back quickly. Because I think if she looks at it, she'll notice, oh, where did you get this? This is a lot of information. Gloria brings up a whole new thing, a warrant issued for his arrest sometime between the indecent exposure and the cop assault. He says he had 28 unpaid parking tickets as a protest against the rezoning of their street, and a judge issued a warrant. So again, like, although these are minor strikes against somebody's character, these are not things that would allow somebody to take your child away from right. you. Right, yeah. They're they are nowhere near that scale. Clevish assumes this is a joke for some reason. Back at Calvin Hall, Jack talks Nancy through the process of stealing a car, and again, they are caught. What are you doing, children? Nothing, Mrs. Wharton. Back at the hearing, Gloria wants to bring up that she got Jeff fired as evidence that he can't hold down a job. Are you employed, Mr. Martley? Uh, not at present, no. Then it's safe to say that you're unemployed, then. Yes, that's a safe thing to say. <laughs> I just like it's delivery. It's just an arc in delivery. Yeah. It's 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 so infuriating to me here, though, that at no point does anybody defend themselves. Yeah. Like, say, well, I was just fired because somebody brought up all of this stuff about me and not and and they fired me because of it or i didn't abuse the child he literally never says that in this entire right. movie that he is innocent and did not abuse his child right i i i, I mean i'm just gonna say it now i found this entire movie infuriating uh and i at this point with, with like exactly to your point when people are just like aren't just saying what they need to say or aren't saying anything when they need to be doing something. Uh, and instead they're like, oh, I came to a crossroads. I can do this responsible thing or that responsible thing. Yeah. I'll punch a cop and run off instead of either of those. But when we were talking about it before, it, re it reminded me of in Night of the Juggler yeah. when he keeps telling everyone, oh, that guy, he got my girl. He's got my girl. And yeah. they're like, oh, you'll find another one. And it's like, yeah, because you're not telling these people that someone kidnapped your daughter. Like, no one is communicating yeah. properly in this movie. But yeah, th no one here is saying, this is a misunderstanding. Here's what happened. Can right. you understand that? Yeah. She asks about his financial situation, and he accuses her of knowing all about it on account of her master file. Jeff stands to address the room in his own defense and level accusations at Washburn, even though his attorney urges him to shut the fuck up. I think that this also doesn't quite hold up now because privacy is so much not a thing anymore that everybody right. pretty much has access to, to any records they want about you that I'm just like, 
yeah, they know this stuff, but it doesn't mean they can take your kid away from you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that what happened is someone watched Kramer versus Kramer yes. and said, let's make this a slapstick comedy. And that's what this is. And it's just, let's, let's, it, it can have a message about the way the system is broken Yeah. at the same time. But let's let's try and do it as a funny comedy thing, and it's not funny. It's not funny when people lose their kids to the system. It's not funny when the system is unsuccessful at taking kids away from a family that shouldn't be taking care of them. So this is just the wrong subject matter for a slapstick comedy. And it does nothing to address uh, an attempt to fix the system. Right. And no, it's just no, saying, isn't this funny? No one's held accountable for anything. Right. Well, I mean... Jeff tries to hold them accountable in the worst possible way. Yeah. Right. And in a, in a way that's impossible to tell who's accountable. <sighs> yeah. Next, Diana takes a turn to address everyone and just calls them insects and terrible people. Instead of trying to explain their situation, she just says, you people are all gross and you're bugs. She tells them all that she'll get her daughter back and only Jeff applauds the speech. Back at Calvin Hall, Jack drags Nancy down a hall in a laundry cart. Fred finds Jeff and Diana in the lobby and informs them that the strategy of just shouting insults at everyone has backfired. Amazingly. And well, what did he do? He did nothing. I mean, he did try to stop Jeff. Yeah, but, but he, that's not enough. Yeah. He didn't present any arguments on their behalf. But also, they're not telling him anything. So, mm. like, we didn't tell you that I punched a cop or that I have all these parking tickets or that I had this indecent exposure charge. You're just finding that out during yeah. this during but this hearing. He, we find out that he's not a custody lawyer. He's right. not even a divorce lawyer, it seems. He said something like, I deal with mortgages. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he tells them their only option is a change in the home environment, meaning that if they want their kid back, they'll have to divorce because they don't trust Jeff around his own child. Diana makes a conscious decision to sabotage the divorce option by chasing the social services people out of the courthouse, threatening to violently murder them. Kramer, so help me God, I'm coming back here and I'm bringing a bazooka and I'm going to blow your brains out, do you hear me? And that goes for the rest of you. Brains all over the floor. I was so mad at this point. That was like, her strategy. And like, you're the sane one. You're the one they like. Just shut up and you'll probably be all right. How desperately don't you want the kid back that you're literally talking about killing everyone here? Yeah, you can't threaten a government agent. In a courthouse. In the middle of the night, Jack is pushing the laundry cart down the middle of a residential street. I don't know how they got it outdoors. I don't yeah. know how they tried to escape four times and got caught every single time and they did nothing to secure these children. Right. I'm impressed that uh, she knew how to get home. Well, from, I mean, they weren't this. technically in the right place, but yeah, they were close enough. Surprisingly close. But they get pulled over here by a bike cop. At home, Jeff and Diana discuss probable grounds for divorce to list on their filing. Like that's even an option anymore after she went completely insane. They've narrowed it down to desertion or adultery. I believe desertion or adultery. It takes three years to establish the grounds for desertion, so that leaves adultery. But for that, we have to have a third party. Got any ideas? Well, there's always your boss. But he's such a dipshit. Mm. No, you could do better than Frazier. You could do a lot better than that. The bike cop returns both children to the address where they claim to be siblings. Why does it have to be her? 
that cheated. Yeah. I yeah I I got the I got the impression that it was going to be a, a that it was a joke when she says, "Oh, what about your boss?" Like it could be me that was the cheater, when obviously it would have been the Arkin character that was the cheater. Well, do you is that I've never gotten divorced. Uh, do you need a reason? We can look into it. <laughs> so I think is it required? I, I think you used to have to. I think there uh, most people just put like there's a spot that you have to fill out that says why. And most people just put irreconcilable differences, I think. Sure. Yeah, I mean, generally, like, there, there's there's plenty of plots in that someone says, I want a divorce, and the other person says no, because there's no, because this is a, a partnership mm-hmm. that, you know, and if I'm, if I haven't beaten you or denied you or harmed you. Or cheated you, on you. Yeah, then, then there's no grounds for this divorce. Um, but that's what to Pat's point about right. the so, so you can have okay. So like, but it, but I feel like that you only need that if it's like a contested divorce. But I guess you need a yeah, reason no matter what. I don't, I don't know. know. It doesn't matter. Anybody want to let us know? You you go ahead and you do that. <laughs> I'm gonna break up this marriage. Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> the bike cop returns both children to the address where they claim to live, and they claim to be siblings. These are your kids, huh? The cop says he caught them eight miles away, but next time they might be found by some maniac. The cop even threatens to call social welfare, but gives them a pass this time. After the cop leaves, Jeff points out that this isn't really a solution, and that if they don't admit that they have her, they'll be charged with kidnapping. Which is the only smart thing that he's said so far. Yeah. But that's why you just straight up call the police immediately. Right. Like, you don't try to come up with some hairball scheme. You don't even let that cop leave. Right. Yeah. Be like, come back here. You say, no, no, no. They escaped from social welfare and we are pressing charges. Yeah. I really love the reaction from Diana here, though, because she's angrily coming to terms with what he said when he's like, we can't just keep them because we'll get charged with kidnapping. And she says, do something then. Would you quickly, Jeff, please do something? Because if you don't, I'm going to throw myself into the trash compactor. I'll do that. Give me a second. Jeff's new plan is to call Fred over tomorrow. He wants to get to the bottom of this information leak. I don't know why he cares so much about the information leak. Everything's yeah. out in the open. Doesn't matter. It's completely irrelevant. But he says he, he needs to get to the bottom of it. So tomorrow, Diana and Fred are going to go to the orphanage to see what they've done with Nancy. What, what do you want me to do with Fred? I want you and he to go to the orphanage and find out what they've done with our kid. But she's, she's here. They don't know that. Aha! Right. <laughs> she's so excited by the plan. The next morning, as the mission begins, Jeff suggests that they synchronize their watches. I got 10 to 8. I have 8 10. Close enough. Nancy asks if they can please adopt Jack, but Diana worries that he might have a family. Jack admits that his parents and entire family are gone, and Diana mentions all the paperwork involved. Jack says he understands completely, and Diana just agrees to adopt him without consulting with Jeff at all, the guy who she chewed out for planning a backyard camp out without her permission. (laughs) Oh, heck, what the hell? I mean, why not? Sure. Yay! Congratulations, Mrs. Marley. You're the mother of an 85-pound baby boy. Cute, Martin. For some stupid reason, they told their attorney, Fred, that they have their kids back before perpetrating this ruse on the orphanage, and on the way, he can't help admitting it when they try to act out their plan. Well, and at this point also, Fred just seemed to have gotten a lot more incompetent. Right. When we first meet him, he's, you know, although he is cheating at golf. He's capably cheating. He's capably cheating, and and he talks about getting needing writs and th- going things, being prepared to go to court and things right. like that. And now he's like like a bumbling oaf where she's trying to having to coach him into things to say. Right, but if they didn't tell him 
that they had the kids back. Well, then, they are in the back seat. But they don't have to be. That's the problem. Is that leave them unsupervised? No, leave them supervised with Jeff. <laughs> leave them with Jeff at the house while you do this part of the day. This doesn't. Not everything needs to happen at the same time or even on the same day. Just leave the kids at home with Jeff. Well, Jeff doesn't need take to the do attorney to the what orphanage. he's doing at all. So right, but for some reason, not only does he do it on the same day, he does it at the exact same time, so they can't watch the kids. But there's no reason to bring the attorney in on this unless you just want him to screw up later. Because you want him to be as upset as he would have been if he didn't know. So don't tell him. But they plan this whole thing together and they're they're doing role play on the way there to act out, okay, here's how we're going to trap them in this conversation. And the first thing the attorney says is, We've got Nancy Markley. No, no, Fred, we want Nancy Markley. Yeah, we, we want Nancy Markley. Why? What do you mean, why? She's your daughter. You want her back, don't you? Fred, I'm playing a character. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Let's Let's try again. For an even stupider reason, they brought the kids with them, and she plans to leave the kids under a blanket in a hot car while they fuck around at the orphanage. We'll keep the windows rolled up so no one can grab you. Yeah. So they don't hear you, and they won't see you because you're going to keep this quilt over your heads. These children shouldn't be taken away. Yeah. (laughs) Meanwhile, Jeff is at the hospital impersonating a surgeon. He orders Gloria Washburn to pediatrics and then rushes into her office to look for clues. In her filing cabinet, he locates her file on him. At Calvin Hall, all the kids are lined up and interrogated as to how two children escaped. Even though it seemed very simple and they were able to leave the building four times the same day. And the woman found them those four times. Right. And she's shocked that they actually made it out one of the times. But what are these kids going to say? They went outside. Like, none of these kids knows anything. We didn't see a kid that has insider information. They're just going to say, hey, you know that laundry cart that's also missing? They rolled that out of the door at the front of the building. (laughs) That's where they went. Diana and Fred meet with the woman in charge of Calvin Hall, Mrs. Wharton. Do you remember the last time we had people snuck out by a laundry cart? Going ape? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jeff goes to a computer lab at the hospital, but not Sherman Who's lab. His is at the social services. So he's at, he's at the computer lab in the hospital, and he asks a technician to pull a file on Jeffrey Martley, but there's almost nothing in the official file. There isn't that much on Martin James. There isn't that much on him. Where the hell did all this stuff come from? I don't know. You don't know? Well, I can find out for you. Well, why don't we do that? Why don't we do that before the patient's guts spill out all over the table? Can I see that, please? What do you want to see this for? If I see the original printout, I can find the source of origin. Oh, okay. But make it snappy. The text says that he can use the paperwork to learn the source of the information and determines that it came from the computer at the social welfare office. Before he leaves, he not so subtly steals the man's code manual when he calls him out on it, he pretends that he's too busy to walk across the room and return it, and then he leaves. And the guy doesn't care. He's like, all right, good luck, doctor. Gloria gets a call from the orphanage about Mrs. Martley trying to visit her child. She doesn't understand the conflict until she is informed that they have lost the child. Gloria advises them to keep the missing kids secret, and she'll be right over, even going so far as to threaten Mrs. Wharton's retirement. Jeff somehow finds the computer lab at the social welfare office, claiming to be a maintenance guy, but Sherman who isn't convinced. I've never seen you before. What happened to Henry? Henry? Yeah, Henry Doe, the regular maintenance guy. Henry's dead. What is that? Yeah, he got hit by a bus yesterday. I don't want to talk about it. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> uh, I wanted to go back, sorry, for a moment yeah, yeah. about uh, Gloria threatening the uh, mistress, headmistress. Yeah, Wharton. What does it benefit? Like, why would Gloria care to have her yeah. lie. It doesn't make Gloria Washburn look bad that social services lost the kid. Yeah. That's that's the orphanage's problem. Correct. 
it doesn't change anything that from Gloria's perspective of trying to fix family because they'll find the kids they'll be put in a different foster home or they'll be dead i mean they were yeah pushing yeah. a laundry cart in the middle of the street at night but but trying to cover it up is it's like it's not washburn's fault yeah so she wouldn't even get in trouble for that i don't know why she's worried sherman tries to call security and jeff hangs up the phone he accuses gloria washburn of destroying every aspect of his life over the last week she took his kids she got him fired she destroyed his credit Sherman considers her a saint and dismisses all of Jeff's accusations. Jeff pretends to cry and then asks Sherman to help him turn himself in. When they get to the door to the lab, he shoves Sherman outside and locks the door. And then he takes the code book that he stole and he starts accessing the master database. He just sits down and he can read all this code fluently because he has this little red book that teaches him a little bit of coding. Yeah, but this is the problem that I have, that there is a master database at cps with all of the information about every person ever well not at cps but on the internet okay but even so then it would take more time and effort and knowledge to secure all of the different bits of information from all of these different people but they lay the groundwork lazily early on when who says you just need to know the language and you can have access to all of this stuff. And so they're saying this red book is the language. So technically speaking, he has all the information he needs to find all this stuff out. Also, time-wise, I feel like he was probably in this room for like six hours. Or multiple days. We see Gloria on the phone with Clavish explaining that if anyone finds out how they got all of Jeff's background info, they could all go to jail. Jeff figures out how to access the secret files and even how to print them all out. At the orphanage, Diana is pretending to get angrier and angrier at their inability to locate her child. Diana threatens to go to the paper if they won't present her child right away, and Clevish says, don't do that because it'll make Gloria look bad. And Gloria is offended by that, insisting that it's his fault, but this is 100% Mrs. Wharton's fault. Neither one of these two people would be going down for this. Wharton lost the kids because she runs an orphanage and leaves the front door open. On laundry day. (laughs) Exactly. It's the worst day to do that. Never on laundry day. Jeff deletes his own permanent record from the computer system. He pulls up Jack Smith's file to learn that his parents were killed in a plane crash. That's the, their, their new son. He alters the file to indicate that Jack has been legally adopted by himself and Martley, but he doesn't exist anymore. So Yeah. And he well, also just deleted his like social security and yeah, citizenship. Yeah, that's my question is, what did he delete? Did he I delete all his police records? Did he delete, like, what did you just He delete? says he deleted the file because then when he goes to do a search for... Jeff Martley, it says not found, so he literally doesn't exist. I in the feel like this system. movie relied too heavily on nobody understanding how computers work. Yeah, I, I, I feel like this is almost like a Fight Club ending. Yeah, like he's just like putting stuff into the computer. I thought he was going to do one step further and just delete all records. Yeah, I, I thought and, that too. And the whole system it's like all was these like gonna, child the molesters are adopting children at the end. <laughs> well, well, because whatever he does, everything starts going crazy in the computer system, and and I have to admit that. The copy that we were watching, or that I was watching of this, I could not read what he it's, was doing. It's on, on the YouTube, so yeah, the the transfer is really bad. And when you're seeing stuff being printed out, I can't read any of the stuff on paper. Yeah. Yeah. But on the monitor, I could read it, including this interesting tidbit. This movie was shot and took place before Kramer versus Kramer came out. Oh. so I mean, I guess the book had been out already, mm. but when he's entering into the system that he and his wife adopted jack smith he says october 6th 1978 Mm. which is before kramer versus kramer came out 
It's almost three years before this film was released, so it must have sat on a shelf for a while in Canada somewhere. Gloria gets another disappointing phone call and learns that Jeff has taken over the computer database room and has access to everybody's files. In the room, he prints out the file on Harold Clevish. I'm very sad that we could only find this on YouTube because all the paperwork's illegible as he prints it out, but I bet there's some juicy crimes in here. I'm sure he's like a rapist and a murderer. Gloria and Clevish race to the regional government offices where the computer lab is. Outside the lab, everybody's in a tizzy, and Clevish marches up to the intercom, expecting to solve the problem. Open this door, you psycho commie I'm gonna see personally you get the electric chair. For the record, that bleep was for the bad F-word, not the good one. <laughs> Gloria takes over the mic, warning him that if he doesn't come out soon, he might be past help. Clevish is tired of someone in social services pretending to help anyone. Inside, Jeff turns off the intercom and sits back at the computer, which he instructs to print a lot of information. Maybe everyone's information? Yeah. Does he know all these people's names? I don't know. Isn't this much worse than what the bad guys were doing in this movie? <laughs> Just printing out all of the information from the database? Well, see, that, that that's what I thought Like this was like some kind of... Again, because I couldn't read what was going on. I saw printouts happening, but I didn't know if it was just saying it could have been said record deleted, record deleted. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I think that the my assumption was everybody that was outside in the hall or chasing them or anybody at CPS, like it was just their general information that he was printing out so that yeah. he'd have. So he's committing the same crime they did as revenge, but times a million. Yeah. But also, he th- he's not doing it for his own benefit. He's right. throw- literally throwing it out the window. Well, he's throwing it out the window because he thinks they'll confiscate it if he mm. opens the door. So he's trying to share this information with anybody that'll pick it up off the street? Yeah, it's kind of like at the end of In God We Trust, when they when he, he takes all the money that they stole and just dumps it off the top of the building. And it's yeah. like, this is for everyone now. Outside, a line of men are trying to ram the door in. Jeff takes the epic printout to the window and dumps everyone's information into the city where anybody could read it. Outside, Clevish tries hopelessly to collect it all, but it's no use. Cops, military, FBI, all skid up to the building to collect paperwork as quickly as possible. Upstairs, Jeff strolls whistling out of the computer lab, where nobody is anymore because they all went outside to collect the paper, and Diana pulls up outside the building with the kids in the backseat, probably dead by now, and collects Jeff to drive (laughs) home. He tells Diana that he erased all of their records, even Jax, he just edited his file and then deleted the evidence of the adoption. He edited it and then deleted it. Yeah, perfect. And but that's also, the end of our like, film. They still know who you are. Right. If they look you up and you're not in the database, that's a red flag. If they look up this kid that's disappeared, that's a red flag. And say, wait, you adopted him? That's not right. We didn't do any of the paperwork for no, that. No, no, no. Computers replaced reality completely. Yeah. I don't. Even today, there's no paperwork to indicate any adoption that has taken place. <sighs> just everything about this movie is infuriating i i my own experience with adoption uh not that i was personally but but assisting with a friend's adoption i had to fill out so many freaking forms over and over and over again you adopted your friend oh it would have been great no but i was i was i was helping them and but i had to fill out all kinds of forms and and like like no 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 you just have to type Person A and person B adopted person C. The end. And then delete. (laughs) Delete the file. (laughs) That's it. That's some Brazil shit going on right here. (laughs) Yeah, uh, this movie's a little frustrating. I mean, I like Alan Arkin in almost everything, so he's bringing it up a little bit in my evaluation, but not enough for it to be a thumbs up, I think. Oh, no. It's mostly frustrating. Um, I think it was a bad mix of 
plot and genre. Yeah. Like, especially towards the end when it gets to be this kind of like, like I, I referenced Fight Club in Brazil. Right. Yeah. Where, where it's trying to be this kind of like message about technology and privacy or. It doesn't hold up th- at yeah. all. Yeah. It's very Fight Club at the end, actually. Yeah. Because <laughs> all the, all the data is being destroyed well and like i said i mean i also mentioned like simon uh just because of like the technology aspect of it but because he he has like this moment where he's like thinking to himself and you're seeing like these weird fade-ins of like machines and his face it's like what is this 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 movie hasn't done anything like this before i thought this was going to be either a drama or a comedy um and it ends up being i guess a bit of both but nothing yeah if it were good if it were good it it would be it could have been a a dramedy but instead it's just a comma Mm -hmm. a comma it's the opposite mix (laughs) c-a-m-a yeah i get it (laughs) um and i the, the bigger problem for me is that i don't understand what happened in the last scene i don't know if he deleted everyone's information i don't know if he printed everyone's information i don't know if he printed specific people's information i don't know if that was all clevish that whole room full of paper was clevish's file well everybody freaks out though that he's printing this stuff and runs outside so i feel like he's printing everybody's stuff but and it like, also seems like government officials track down and collect all of the paperwork that he throws out the window i don't know so nothing like, nothing happened as a result of this and what's gonna happen somebody gonna steal your identity that's no, about just, the worst of it somebody- they literally this it's all we've already established that, that any information that he threw out the window just now is inadmissible so nobody's going to get charged for anything that they did yeah. here well this is known stuff though this is stuff from databases that people already know right just the fact is that now it's more public than it was before because you needed a little red code book to access it before and but now a guy who don't. doesn't exist will go to jail for releasing it yeah but also again there's so much information on these printouts there's no way you could possibly find anyone specific right like I mean, the if all those people are worried that like that there's so many different people, well, even if there was like a hundred people, just a hundred people on those printouts that he threw out, yeah, the odds of you getting any one person's information, well, like, and what's Joe Schmo or the half naked nun that's walking down the street gonna do with this information? They yeah. don't care. Yeah, it's kind of like they're saying, "Here, you throw this away." Yeah. So thumbs down. Yeah, thumbs down. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's down. Um, letterbox, what are we thinking? Did you guys do that yet? Yeah. So I have it at number thirty five out of forty four for the year. Richard? <laughs> I, 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 I I'm just gonna guess off the top of my head. He's way off of that number. <laughs> I, I also have it at thirty five. Well, but mine's below modern romance and above earthbound. Okay. Well mine is Above Earthbound. <laughs> and uh, below Modern Romance. It is, it, but it's too below Modern Romance. <laughs> it's actually directly below Amy. Why are you guys so different? It's frustrating uh, how different you are. Why can't you both have Modern the Romance? the guys who write the, the same, same notes. <laughs> What's this movie called? Improper Channels. Improper Channels. And what is that title? Yeah. What does this title mean? What are the improper channels? Improper channels implies that you did something, you went over somebody's head, or you did something unorthodox to well, get... Well, at the very end, he breaks into a computer and steals some information, which I guess is the wrong way to do it. Yeah, but I wouldn't call that an improper channel. I wouldn't either. Like, to me, like, an improper channel would be 
I, I need a police report, but I'm going through the medical office uh, to get it. Right. Or I hired a guy to smuggle something because I couldn't get it done the right way. Wow. Um, mine's very close to your guys's. I have it in 36th. Um, it's below Pinball Summer and just above Harry's War. Mm. Um, Harry's War, another situation where I didn't sympathize with the person like I was supposed to. Yeah. But this is slightly better because it's Alan Arkin. Alan Arkin just gets points. So. And Alan Arkin doesn't attempted murder. That's true. He it's successfully murders. No, I guess he did attempt to murder his daughter. Our director here was Eric Till. He has a bunch of stuff, but the only title I recognized was Luther with Joseph Fiennes. Or Finnis. Depending on if you want to pronounce it wrong. <laughs> Ralpaha Fiennes. <laughs> His first name and last name were pronounced wrong. <laughs> Have you heard of that? It's like this whole thing about it's a website for about how to help pronounce things but it all it's, everything's <laughs> They're wrong. all wrong yeah <laughs> so for for ray finds this is ralp fianinus <laughs> ralp fianinus <laughs> <laughs> that's it but this is not him this is his brother joseph that was in the movie luther playing i believe martin luther not martin luther king no and that not the idris elba luther <laughs> no no like nail shit to a door luther yeah. right yeah the story and script were from Maury Ravinsky, who also wrote nine episodes of the Highlander TV series. Another one of the writers is Ian Sutherland. I didn't recognize his credits. And then writer Adam Arkin. This was his only screenwriting credit, mostly directing and acting work, including episodes of The Americans, The Sons of Anarchy, Justified, Masters of Sex, Succession, Santa Clarita Diet, and that Get Shorty reboot. He directed for all of those shows. He also acted in a bunch of stuff. Too much to go through, but I'll mention his turn on West Wing as Stanley Keyworth, a trauma specialist who helps Josh with PTSD, and then later POTUS with his sleeping issues. And then, like I said, he's in that werewolf movie later this year. The music was from Marybeth Solomon. She's a regular composer on Schitt's Creek. Cinematographer Anthony B. Richmond, he did Don't Look Now, The Man Who Fell to Earth, The American Success Company, which we covered with a Minnesota earlier this year, and later Falling in Love Again director Stephen Paul's Slapstick of Another Kind. That's the one with Jerry Lewis and Madeline Kahn as Ooh. aliens who touched oh, heads. Oh, the twin aliens with yeah. the giant heads. This is the cinematographer? Yeah. Yeah, also did Candyman. Yep. Uh, more recently, he lends Candyman, Men of Honor, Legally Blonde, Dumb and Dumberer, A Cinderella Story, Just Friends, Employee of the Month, and The Squeakwell. <laughs> Editor Tom Noble, his first editing credit was Truffaut's Fahrenheit 451. Later this year, he cuts Tattoo, and then later... Red Dawn, Witness, Poltergeist 2, The Mosquito Coast, Exorcist 3, Thelma and Louise, Hudsucker Proxy, The 96 Island of Dr. Moreau, Reign of Fire, and Red. Alan Arkin was Jeffrey Martley. We reviewed his work as Yosarian in our review of Catch-22. He was also Simon and Simon last year. Later this season, he's back as The Flash in Choo Choo and the Philly Flash and Dr. Brand in Full Moon High. I, I have to say that this movie had a lot of those Simon frustration things. Yeah. And I thought that that was kind of interesting that, that Alan Arkin was also in another frustration comedy. Yeah. He's great at that though. He's also in the last unicorn. He's bean and freebie on the bean helmed by stuntman director, Richard rush, who just passed away in April 8th of this year. He took over the role of inspector Clouseau for the best pink Panther film, inspector Clouseau. He's Freud in the 7% solution. He's in Edward Scissorhands, the rocketeer, Get Smart, Argo, and he won an Oscar for his appearance in Little Miss Sunshine. 
Marriott Hartley played Diana Martley. That rhymes. Later, she shows up as Mrs. Morgan in Encino Man and Susan Clabin, or Clabone, I'm not sure, in Hitchcock's Marnie. She won the first ever Emmy awarded to an adaptation of a Marvel comic, Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series, for her appearance as Dr. Carolyn Fields in a special two-hour episode of The Incredible Hulk, wherein Hulk travels to Honolulu to meet a psychiatrist with hopes that she can teach him to control his transformations with hypnosis. Over the course of the episode, Hulk learns that Dr. Fields herself suffers from a terminal illness and puts his expertise to work trying to cure her illness and the two fall in love. Listener Stephen Sperling also pointed out to me that she reprises Catherine Hepburn's Rose Sayer character in a TV movie sequel to The African Queen, also called The African Queen, opposite Warren Oates in the bogey role. IMDb describes it like so. After the events of The African Queen, Charlie and Rose are recaptured by the Germans and forced to tug one of their big cannons that could bring the Nazis' victory against the local Allied forces. Monica Parker played Gloria Washburn. She plays Namu in Police Academy 2. She's Tindermash in The Road to Wellville. She has a bunch of Lifetime-looking TV movie credits, and she also has a story credit on All Dogs Go to Heaven. Yeah, I saw that, and then I looked it up, and... Uh, there's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven story by credits. Oh, really? On all uh. those. But here's the thing: they're all with an ampersand. Interesting. So but they did it together. They all. It was a big, huge. It's like a co- writing group. Yeah, it must be a big collaboration. Now there's a screenplay credit as well for David Weiss, um, but he's also one of the story by credits. That reminds me of uh, Mulan has like thirty something credited writers for it, but that's probably a lot of Disney stuff. Because that stuff's in development for so long. Yeah. Harry Ditson played Harold Clevish. He's back later this year in Ragtime and Reds. And he's also Duquois in Top Secret. Danny Higgum played Jack. He's Ben Marshall in Death Ship last year. I think he's the kid that like tries to eat the candy on the boat. Oh. Uh, and they take it away from him. He tries to drink black water out of the fountain. <laughs> Some also, people should just die. He also <laughs> pees on the deck of the ship when they get there, I think. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he has to pee. It's like, just go. It's like, there's an ocean all around and you peed on our boat, you dumb. <laughs> Ruth Springford played Mrs. Wharton. We saw her previously in The Changeling as Minnie Huxley, the senator's mole at the real estate office. I don't know why he needs a mole at the real estate office. Philip Aiken played Motorcycle Cop. He's the general in Cube 2 Hypercube and General Wilkes in The Sum of All Fears. Probably same universe. <laughs> He's also Dr. Vermeil in Iceman and Dr. Allen in the RoboCop reboot. Please same are, universe. Yeah, he's really into those sci-fi. Harvey Atkin played police sergeant. He was Morty in Meatballs, and we just had him as the bus driver in Atlantic City, where we mentioned that he plays the delivery guy from Floyd's in John Landis's The Stupids. Also the voice of uh, King Koopa. Oh, that's right. On the Super Mario Brothers Super Show? Yeah. Nice. Richard Blackburn was Fraser's assistant. He's currently Chester on the new Netflix series Jupiter's Legacy, which I think is superhero adjacent. I haven't watched any of that one. Yes. Have you seen any of that? I haven't. Um, I've just I, seen one frame, I think, of people standing behind a throne. Yeah, it's just I just watched the first episode of Invincible. I was like, whew, I need a break from that already from the oh, first episode. Oh, another superhero streaming show. Yeah, Invincible's so freaking good. Ken Camero Taylor played City Official. He plays a coach, probably a hockey coach, in Happy Gilmore. He played three characters in three separate MacGyvers, including Brett Thompson in Thin Ice, 
Jerry in Runners, and Neil in Live and Learn. More recently, he played Judge Hankerson on the Flash TV series. Multiple episodes. Leslie Carlson played Bucci. That's the person who was traumatized by their experience at the hospital. He's a Cronenberg regular in titles like Videodrome, Dead Zone, and The Fly. Last year, he was a marshal in Nothing Personal. And this season, he's back for Circle of Two. He shows up in two MacGyvers, Ma Dalton and Passages. And he's also the Christmas tree man in A Christmas Story. Gilly Fenwick played Dr. Flange. Dr. Flange. I'm sure one of these people was Dr. Flange. Uh, I would say that's either the doctor in the lab or the uh, Indian stereotype. Or do you think it was the guy that said, I'll keep her overnight? Oh, possibly. No, that was like Dr. Apthgar or something like that. He's the voice of Kangakon and the leader in the Hulk animated series in the 60s. He also voiced the Lizard and Vulture in the 60s Spider-Man for one-off appearances each. Joyce Gordon played Dr. Peacock. She's the lunch lady from Billy Madison. <laughs> Stop it, lady. You're scaring us. I made him extra sloppy for you. Also, lots of voices on the Super Mario Brothers Super Show from Joyce Gordon. But nobody specific. No characters I recognize. Mm. Alf Humphreys was orderly number two. He was William Drake in X-Men 2. Earlier this year, he was Howard in My Bloody Valentine. He's back later this season as Lou Picard in Gas and next season as Lester in First Blood. He's also Sailor Number 2 in Day of Resurrection, which gets a mini-sode this year. Sandy Kovac played Bernie. He'll be Officer Bentley in The Pit later this season. Kate Lynch is pediatric nurse. She's Roxanne in Meatballs, and she was also Audrey Seltzer in Nothing Personal. Al Maney, or Al Maini, played lab technician. He's the chauffeur in Billy Madison and the high priest in X-Men Apocalypse. Patrick Patterson played security guard number two. He's Butcher in The Pit later this season and a mover in Obsession the following season. Wayne Robeson played Prisoner. Who is the prisoner in here? Yes. The political it must prisoner? It be, must be <laughs> at, the, at the jail when he's trying to turn himself in and there's a prisoner. But Wayne Robeson, we've seen previously as Chisel Flint in Popeye. He also played Wren, one of the first deaths in the first cube. Oh. And he's the voice of Frank in Rescuers Down Under. Another, then, another prisoner. Yeah. It's the Wren. <laughs> exactly. And then the last credit I have here is Mary Charlotte Wilcox, who played the orphanage secretary, and she was a regular SCTV performer and writer. Uh, <laughs> I only want to bring up because I was going through the cast and I said, Ted Turner. <laughs> yeah, not that Ted Turner. <laughs> not that Ted Turner. I think that's everything for Improper Channels. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we're Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Lion of the Desert, which IMDb describes like so. In 1929, Italian fascist dictator Benito Mussolini appoints General Rodolfo Graziani as colonial governor to Italian Libya with orders to stamp out all resistance from Libyan nationalists led by rebel guerrilla leader Omar Mukhtar. We leave you now with the trailer for Lion of the Desert. 20 years, 20 fruitless years we've wasted on this war. What are we fighting in reality? Desert tribesmen? Ghosts? I want their leader brought here. I want him brought to me. I want the revolution crushed. 
I give you Libya, Jen. My father used to say, "Blows that don't break your back, strengthen it." Show Graziani some spine. We will fill their wells. We will burn their fields. We will destroy their trees. We will turn their land brown. Murderers! Ah, why do you not surrender? You cannot win this war. Your blood against their metal. They take this land by day, but by God, they take it back by night. We win or we die. And don't think it stops there. You will have the next generation to fight, and after the next, the next. <laughs>